Hello, I'm Hans Lee from Livewire Markets, and you're tuning into Signal or Noise, the podcast. Each episode, I'm joined by Australia's top macro minds to explain how you can make money from a top-down perspective. If you're confused by the data or a little lost in the headlines, this show is for you. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe to our show and the Livewire Markets and Market Index websites. And a reminder that everything you're about to hear is information only and not advice. So with that said, let's go. Hello, I'm Hans Lee from Livewire Markets and welcome to Signal or Noise. This month, our episode is devoted to the first anniversary of the war in Ukraine and more broadly how that's affected investing and the global economy in general. And with that said, let's meet our panel. Todd Warren is a portfolio manager at Tribeca Investment Partners, Ben Goodwin, a portfolio manager at Merlin Capital Partners, and it's nice to have Diana Messina of AMP back on our panel for the first time this year. Welcome to you all. Thanks for joining us. Let me start with one quick question just to the panel. I mean, we saw a lot of volatility in the markets and through the economic data, of course, throughout 2022, partially as a result of the war, partially because of COVID. Do you think that volatility is here to stay for the long run? Diana, I might start with you. Well, maybe not for the long run, but definitely until we get through the rest of this uh, rate rising cycle around the world, both in the global economy and also within Australia. And also because the risk of a recession is still so high in the next 12 to 18 months, I think that volatility will still remain with us in markets for now. Yep. Todd? Yeah, I'm inclined to agree. Um, I mean, as a, as a bottom-up stock picker, if you told me it was going for the long run, I'd be probably out the door in a hurry with tears in my eyes. But uh, no, we, we, we wouldn't be inclined to agree. The near-term noise is here to stay, um, but we think fundamentals will return. Yep. Ben? Yeah, look, I have a slightly different view. Um, I mean, coming into this whole situation, um, you know, into COVID um, and into, uh, you know, Russia, Ukraine, uh, we've had a very underinvested global energy system, coal, gas, oil, and any sort of, you know, underinvested system is, you know, quite vulnerable. And we've seen, you know, what happens um, when you have a vulnerable system. And I think that, you know, until we see like, you know, significant uh, investment um, in, you know, energy capacity, I think volatility is still a risk. Well, I'm glad you mentioned energy. And, you know, speaking of volatility, of course, the war in Ukraine created immense price moves in the commodities market. So for the bulk of this episode, we're actually going to take a look at three commodities that have seen a significant impact from the war. And as we've already alluded to, the first one is energy, specifically crude oil and natural gas. Now consider this, at the beginning of the war, Russia was estimated to have earned 285 billion US dollars from European imports of its energy. In the first two weeks after its invasion, the prices of oil, coal and gas went up by 40%, 130% and 180% respectively. And of course, you can see how the energy sector did for the rest of the year in this chart that we're going to put up now from our partners and market index. And for the podcast audience, this is purely just the energy sector showing how it outperformed the XJR, the wider ASX 200. And of course, the major energy players listed locally all just handed down chunky earnings. So, of course, my question to you all will be, will oil and gas prices continue to remain elevated going forward? Diana, signal or noise? I think it's a signal. In the near term, I think energy prices are still going to remain quite high and it goes beyond Russia and Ukraine. We've seen massive underinvestment in oil and gas and energy around the world really over the past five to ten years. In the US, oil investment as a share of the economy peaked in 2016 and with the push towards ESG, I think the demand for oil and gas will still remain uh, quite high because 
that that push towards ESG will occur over a longer time period than we were initially expecting. So for the time being, and with the uncertainty around what's going to eventually happen with Ukraine, because I think that the war can continue for some time, as it is at the moment, then prices will probably remain quite elevated for energy stocks and energy in general. Yep, absolutely. Todd, signal or noise? 100% signal. Um, I mean, obviously, as, as Deanna says, I mean, there was a lot of noise around the war, but um, the reality is we had oil trading $100 a barrel before the tanks rolled into Ukraine. So, you know, you can, you can actually say that point to point, oil's down um, over the 12 months. Um, that said, obviously, the big response has been in gas, uh, given obviously Russia's dominance of gas into Europe specifically. Um, but to Deanna's point, you know, we've been beating these uh, oil and gas producers over the head for a very long time now telling them they're terrible allocators of capital, uh, telling them that, that the, the product they produce is you know, a dying industry, uh, and yet we're now seeing the fruits of the market's labour um, in many respects. I mean, you only look, need to look at what Germany are doing right now, uh, who obviously hitched their wagon to the wrong horse, you could say, but they're turning back on their coal-fired power. Uh, you know, and that's because you know, whilst we have these longer-term decarbonisation desires, we're fighting a very stiff energy security headwind need. Absolutely. Ben, signal or noise? Yeah, definitely. Um, well, definitely in the case of gas uh, and I guess coal, uh, definitely a very strong signal. Uh, signal to, um, you know, ration, you know, the use of gas. So we're seeing heavy industry, um, you know, reducing production. So ammonia producers like BASF um, reducing production, um, as well as, you know, aluminium smelters uh, and refineries operating at below normal capacity. So you're definitely seeing demand destruction uh, at play. Um, and that's just a response to high prices and, and loss making. So, you know, there's definitely a very strong signal to, to, to ration. Um, and equally, there's a strong signal to invest, um, which we've, you know, uh, I guess touched on already. But, um, you know, I definitely think there's a, uh, a signal to invest, uh, both in terms of upstream in the US and, and, and elsewhere to produce the gas and to get it on a boat. Uh, and downstream, you know, in terms of uh, Germany and other, you know, importing nations to build regasification terminals to, to be able to import it. So definitely a, a very strong signal. Now, it may not have escaped your notice, we do have two commodities-focused and commodity-centric portfolio managers here on the panel, so we couldn't resist it. Uh, Todd and Ben, if you had to nominate your highest conviction energy play for 2023, what would it be? Todd, start with you. Uh, in the Aussie market, it's Santos. Um, Santos had actually a pretty ordinary market-wise in 22. Uh, we actually think it's, it's dramatically undervalued. Uh, underappreciated and uh, the reality is you've actually got quite a number of strong catalysts coming through um, um, uh, in terms of news flow. Um, so, you know, you think, we think, you know, compared to its biggest peer, Woodside, who actually had a, a fantastic year in 22, um, the valuation um, differential is, is just too marked to ignore at a time when, you know, coming back to the point about underinvestment, these guys are actually doing the right things with regards to their portfolio. We should still see growth. Uh, and they'll still see considerable free cash and that should come back to investors. Okay, so Santos for Todd, what about you Ben? Yeah look I do agree with Todd on Santos, that is definitely interesting but in terms of my own sort of pick at the moment, um, probably a bit late now but um, you know coming out of COVID we, you know, we did have a lot of energy uh, in the portfolio and have you know, progressively lightened that but one position we continue to hold just because it had lagged quite a bit was uh, Origin Energy. Um, and obviously, sort of the takeover uh, bid has sort of you know put a rocket up you know that stock. But um, you know we certainly found that quite appealing, and we still um, are holders of the stock. I mean, it's energy markets business is you know now looks like it's at a run rate of a billion dollars, um, and it's um, APLNG LNG investments distributing a billion dollars to it as well. So it's 
you know, certainly, uh, certainly making a lot of money right now, so that's something that we uh, continue to hold. Comes back to that natural gas thematic you were just talking about. Definitely, well. yes. Yep. All right, let's pivot now to our second commodity, or I guess block of commodities, and that's agriculture and the food commodity space. Now, one commodity quite a few investors profited from very quickly was the spike in wheat prices, of course, at the breakout of the war. Now, those sort at the beginning, but it closed out 2022 with just a 2% gain for the year. And the declines are continuing in this chart, which we'll now show you. It's actually from the United Nations. Now, for the record, and of course for the podcast audience, this is not just wheat. This is actually the food price index. But the point we're getting at is that it's come down from record highs and it does continue to come down. So, the question here is, will agri-commodities see another surge or was it a one-off situation? And that is the question we're going to pose to the panel. Todd, we'll start with you for round two. Signal or noise? It's signal, again. Um, there's obviously been, again, short-term noise. Um, but we would certainly argue that the impact that Ukraine has from a supply perspective is, is hard to ignore. Um, the other factor going on here, which is sort of getting forgotten a bit, is uh, the climatic impact we've had, certainly in Australia and offshore. Um, and um, that's where you've had, interestingly, a number of years that have had a bit of a tailwind for Aussie producers, um, which perhaps haven't been felt overseas. Um, and uh, we think that that could swing around as well. So it's, it's not a, it's a global question you're asking, but there's different markets that, are, that I think are going to behave differently. All right, there you go. Well, we might come back to that when we have a little pick around in the agri space. What about you, Ben? Signal or noise? Yeah, uh, signal again um, from me. Um, I'm looking at it from a slightly different perspective. Um, I mean, one of the big costs in terms of you know, producing food is um, fertiliser. Um, and one of the big costs in producing fertiliser, um, in terms of nitrogen-based fertilisers at least, is, uh, is gas. So wherever gas goes, fertiliser will probably go. And wherever fertiliser goes, you know, that'll be you know, an input cost for producing food. So I think while ever that remains volatile, you know, food prices will be, you know, some degree, I guess, a, uh, a hostage of that. Yep. Deanna, what about your signal or noise? I think a short-term signal, if I can say that, yep. uh, just because all these factors in the near term will keep the price of food elevated and that increase in food price that you saw started before Russia and Ukraine as well in 2021, we saw that big increase in food prices. I think that COVID still led to a lot of disruptions in supply around transport and storage costs and obviously the fertilizer costs which increase the um, the price of food so in the short term food prices will probably still remain elevated as we sort out what happens between russia and ukraine but in the longer term maybe you'll start you'll start to see a bit of a pullback okay all right and that'll be great news for headline inflation obviously for the rba at least and also for emerging and developing markets, which have a much larger reliance on food prices. That's a big share of their consumption basket. And we normally see when you have a big spike in food prices, that's when you tend to see a lot of negative impacts on those emerging nations like the um, Arab Spring a few years ago. Yeah, no, I understood completely. Um, Todd and Ben, I'm going to pose the question to you, which we did before. Is there an agri-related play you'd be interested in holding this year? Maybe Todd again, we'll start with you. Yeah, well, I guess it comes back to the comments I made earlier. Um, we think some of the Australian producers uh, have had a very strong, um, unusually strong tailwind at their back for a number of years now. And I mean, you wouldn't necessarily see it in their share prices, mind. Um, but their earnings, we think, is peaking uh, for a number of these guys. Where we think there's still some upside is, is New Farm. Uh, and they have a greater exposure to offshore markets. So where the offshore markets have had droughts um, and the impact that that has had, Australia has been dealing with a drought with 2018, 2019, and the subsequent um, rains, as, as we know we've had, certainly on um, uh, the East Coast, has been a big tailwind uh, for these guys, both from a feed perspective and, and obviously their, um, 
uh, the sale of their product. That we think is peaking, but for New Farm, they've got considerable exposure offshore where we think that upside is just now starting to kick in. Okay, so New Farm both onshore and offshore tailwinds as well. Well, yeah, yeah, significant offshore. Yep. Ben, what about you? I know you were talking about fertiliser earlier, so I imagine that plays into, into your call in some way? No, absolutely it does, yeah. So um, Intertech Pivot, um, it's a position that we've held um, maybe for 12 months, 18 months, yeah. um, position that we continue to like. Um, and I guess one of the real sort of um, parts of that business that is particularly attractive right now, um, despite the fact that you know, fertiliser prices have come off um, as a result of gas prices, they have a, um, you know, a large manufacturing facility in the US, in Louisiana, which they um, effectively buying Henry Hub at you know, $2.50 at the moment um, and turning that into um, ammonia and selling that you know, at uh, still incredibly high margins. So the margin that they make per tonne is you know, two to three times what they normally make. Uh, even you know with um, you know ammonia prices coming down to where it is at the moment, so I do think that's remained incredibly profitable, and just its exposure to uh, you know U.S. gas. I mean, if they can monetize that excess supply in any way, that's an attractive asset. Yeah, no, absolutely. Let's move to our third commodity, and that's gold. Of course, it's often seen as a safe haven during times of crises like a war in Eastern Europe. But, of course, this time it was also hampered by the Federal Reserve's interest rate policy and the soaring U.S. dollar which we will see in this chart from Macro Trends. Now for the podcast audience, what we've just basically done is gold versus the US dollar index over the last three years. For the video audience, the orange line is gold and the blue line is king dollar. So question for the panel, does gold have a better time this year or its best days for the cycle over? Ben, signal or noise? Um, yeah, it could be, uh, I guess, if you put that in relation to um, you know, the geopolitical situation, um, it's potentially noise. I mean, it didn't really do a whole lot last year, maybe up 2%. Um, so it's not really reacting to that at all. It's reacting, as you mentioned, to um, you know federal um, reserve interest rate policy and, and inflation. I think they're the two things that are going to uh, continue to drive gold from here. Yep. Okay. Deanna, I thought it was interesting that last year central bank demand for gold hit a 55-year record. <laughs> so someone's buying, um, even though it's not necessarily the RBA. But I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Signal or noise? Well, I suppose in the short term, uh, the, the real question is what happens to real interest rates because mm. gold tends to have an, in, an inverse relationship with US real interest rates. So I, I think the risk is that they probably go up a bit more than we expected in the short term, given that the Fed is likely uh, to, to take rates to a high level than where we were thinking a few months ago. So in the short term, maybe some further downside for gold, but then in the, in the longer term, you'll probably start to see real interest rates start to taper out. I mean, they have already had such a huge rise in the US and the US dollar is also likely to start weakening, we think, through, throughout this year. So that should be positive for gold prices. And that's the classic pairs, Trey, the US dollar versus the, the gold story. So we'll say short term noise maybe and long term signal. Yep. All right, we'll run with that. Uh, Todd, signal or noise? <laughs> Um, I'm inclined to say noise. I mean, okay. it, it is the commodity that's most influenced by noise. Um, and not just in the short term, but in the longer term. Um, you know, the bulls will give you all sorts of arguments as to why gold goes up and there's just as many bears on the other side. Um, and frankly, I've given up trying to predict which one's going to win. <laughs> um, but, you know, that's not to say there's not an argument from an investment perspective in owning gold equities, but mm. I always find, you know, it's, it's difficult to, to paint a fundamental demand and supply argument for gold, uh, when there are so many macro influences that do luff it around. So, my view, noise. 
So let's stay with that then. If you're saying, you know, spot gold's difficult to work out, but gold equities are not necessarily difficult to own. Do you own any gold equities on behalf of clients? Uh, we do. Um, and that comes back to, you know, the point that I think you can still make money out of owning a gold miner. Um, indeed, if you look at valuations of gold stocks today, we're back to sort of the, the, the horrible years of 2013, 2015, uh, when these things were, were really beaten up. And we are at that sort of point again right now. Um, our favourite name right now is Northern Star. Um, we do think that you know, it's a stock that has um, fundamental growth in its, in its earnings profile as a function of production uh, at a time when you know, they're generating free cash. You know, free cash yield is quite strong. They're doing a buyback. They're paying a dividend. They're doing all the right things as far as shareholders are concerned. It's the two favourite words, isn't it? Buyback and dividend, honestly. Um, ben, do you feel the same way as Todd about gold and gold stocks? Oh, look, I definitely feel the same way about gold. It is incredibly hard to, you know, forecast the gold price. If you look back at, you know, where real interest rates were last time, they were at, you know, one and a half percent. That was back in 2010. Gold prices were, you know, a lot way um, below where they are now back in 2010. So I guess from a, you know, a risk return perspective, it looks like at the gold price level, at least, you know, looks like there could be more downside risk than upside risk. So we find it hard to, you know, own gold stocks at the moment. It's not to say, you know, they could go up or they could go down, but, you know, from our perspective, the risk return, you know, trade-off just doesn't look um, appealing enough. All right, there you go. So someone's staying out of gold. Interesting in these times. Thank you, everybody. Let's now move to our final segment. It's our Charts to Watch segment. We, of course, ask these guys to bring in one favourite chart. And, of course, these are going to be commodities related. Deanna, I'll start with you. You brought along the correlation between inflation and the Bloomberg Commodity Index. So tell us why this chart is of interest to you. Well, I think that it's quite telling in terms of why we've had such a large run-up in inflation. It hasn't only been demand-driven, it's also been a story around higher commodity prices and, and, and how that's flowed through into inflation. And you can see throughout history, when you get either the bottoms or the tops in commodity markets, like in, 20, in 2009, in 2012, when you see those peaks and troughs, that flows through into inflation six to 12 months down the track. So this big rise in CPI that we had last year that reflected the huge increase in commodity prices. And we've seen that Bloomberg index come down. I mean, obviously it's still elevated compared to its long run levels, but it's come down quite significantly. And alongside the slowing that you're going to see in demand and in the economy, whether we're talking about the US or in Australia, that should see lower consumer inflation. Yep, all right, thank you very much. Todd, you've actually tackled something that a lot of live wire readers are talking about. Of course, well, lots of investors are talking about, that's EVs. You've done copper production versus consumption. So talk us through this one and why this chart matters to you. Yeah, well, I mean, um, copper is obviously a huge uh, component of EVs, but also the broader um, electrification or decarbonisation thematic. Uh, and where we see um, the copper uh, story going is a massive deficit um, playing out um, by the end of this decade, sort of to the tune of about 8 million tonnes. Now, um, to put that in perspective, the world's biggest copper mine is a million tonnes per annum. So we need uh, uh, an Escondida, that, that mine, which replacement cost is $25 billion, by the way. We need a new Escondida to be bought in production every single year between now and 2030. We'll be lucky if we get one. Yeah. Okay. Well, there you go. Um, quick Question just on the on the decarbonisation element. How do you deal with the, the copper and lith copper versus lithium debate? I guess if you like. Yeah, well, I mean they're driven by similar thematics, mm -hmm. but the supply and demand fundamentals are differing for them at the same time. So, I mean, lithium, you know, it's been a, a darling sector of the market, uh, and a lot of the stocks have run up significantly as a consequence. Um, in the immediate term, it does feel like we've got some perhaps a bit of an air pocket uh, with regards to supply just. 
uh, exceeding demand in the immediate term. Longer term, the thematic's the same. Um, we would argue there's probably more challenges with regards to uh, copper supply um, in the longer term than there is perhaps of lithium, um, and that comes down to the scale of dollars that need to be invested. Perfect. Thank you very much. Ben, we're actually going to talk about oil rigs for, for your chart. I know you are talking about natural gas earlier, but you brought along an oil chart. So talk us through this one and why you think it should matter to investors. Yeah, um, I mean, oil, um, as we've touched on, um, hasn't really moved a whole lot since, you know, Russia's invasion uh, of Ukraine in terms of point to point. Um, obviously, had a lot of volatility in between, but, you know, it's pretty much where it was pre-invasion. So, um, you know, that's sort of interesting in itself, given Russia is one of the top three producers of oil. Um, so just sort of looking, you know, at sort of, I guess, you know, a rough approximation of the outlook for the commodity itself, you know, our consumption of oil looks like it's normalised, it's back to pre-COVID levels and potentially even a little bit above now. Uh, so that's kind of back to normal. But then if you look at, you know, future supply, you know, where's that going to come from? Well, as a proxy for, you know, future uh, supply, you know, we look at the rig count, so the amount of, you know, rigs that are actively drilling for oil. Uh, around the world, um, you know, you sort of map that versus, you know, uh, demand and that looks like it's peaked uh, at below pre-COVID levels. It's currently, uh, you know, more than 10% below, um, you know, where they were pre-COVID uh, and you've seen the US rig count has actually turned. Um, so that's sort of, you know, a potential risk that's now growing in the oil market itself. Um, I'm not saying it's going to manifest, but it certainly looks like it could. Um, so that's something that we're definitely keeping an eye on. And uh, you know, US rig count going south has never really been a, a positive indicator for future supplies. So that's something that we're definitely look, uh, keeping an eye on. Yeah, there you go. That's going to do it. That's it for Signal Illinois. Noise. A big thank you to our panel, to Todd Warren of Tribeca. Thank you very much, Ben. Goodwin of Merlin Capital. Thank you. And of course, Deanna Messina of AMP. Good to have you back. We will be back next month with the first of our multi-asset specials for the year. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed the program, please do subscribe to both the Livewire Markets and Market Index websites, as well as our YouTube channel and podcast. Until then, thank you for joining us.